It's Wednesday, May the 19th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hubs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I'm the only fellow who can lay claim to that title, I am not the only fellow who can claim to be a podcaster. Uh, how many podcasts, you might ask? Well, go find out for yourself. Go to Hoover's website, which is www.hoover.org. Click on the button that says Publications, go to where it says Podcast, and you'll see a whole array of podcasts waiting for you. Everything from law to economics to culture, uh, foreign policy, you name it, we cover it. Uh, I find these are great to listen to, especially now that we're all uh, getting outside and moving around again. I like to take them on walks or long airplane rides. Um, Great for the gym, great for workouts. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, feel free to. You can subscribe to any or all of them. You can also subscribe to our monthly podcast, which delivers the best of our podcast to you each month. Hoover Podcast is one part of Ideas Defining a Free Society. My guest today joining me from somewhere on the Stanford University campus is my colleague, Terry Moe. Terry Moe is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and the William Bennett Monroe Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. He's written extensively on the presidency and political institutions. That includes a very fine book he co-authored, the title of which is President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy. And that's the topic of today's podcast, Populism. Terry, thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, Great to be here. So uh, in getting ready for this, Terry, I stumbled across an article in The Atlantic, March 2020, the headline, quote, populism is meaningless. By reducing the term to a political pejorative, we risk rendering it meaningless. Um, And the complaint was just you take a politician, you take a movement, an idea, and you put the label populist on it. So um, I think for our listeners' purposes, why don't you, Professor Mo, describe exactly what populism is? Well, it's a very important Uh, term uh, that goes right to the center of uh, not only modern politics uh, here in in Western Europe and elsewhere, but also goes to the center of uh, the crisis of democracy that we're now in the the midst of. So um, uh, in common language, uh, populism is associated with you know, standing up for the little guy and the disadvantaged, you know, by taxing the rich and redistributing income and having social programs and so on, and which for liberals uh, is, is a very good thing, right? And it's usually been associated with that. Um, uh, but this is not the way scholars uh, use the term uh, these days based on historical experience. Uh, to scholars, populism means something very different. Um, Uh, And it's not associated with uh, uh, an ideology of the left or the right necessarily. Uh At at the heart of a populist movement is the belief that they represent the real people of a nation. Uh, In the United States, white conservative Christian people. Uh And they're rising up to attack a system that they see as corrupt and illegitimate uh, and elites that they see as corrupt and illegitimate. So populism at its core pits the people against the system, which as it happens is a democratic system. And their aim is to attack that system by embracing a strongman leader who expresses their rage, who takes on the system by attacking its institutions, its norms, its established leaders, its bureaucrats and experts, and who can get things done by taking matters into his own hands and running roughshod over normal democratic rules and procedures. Nothing, as they see it, should stand in the way of the people's will. 
So this is why populism is so important and so dangerous in our times. It's not just anti-system. It arises within a democratic system, and it's ultimately an attack on democracy itself, led by a strongman ruler. Populism itself, Terry, dates back to what, classic Athens? Yes, it does. Uh, you know, Athens was the birthplace of democracy, and the Athenians recognized that, uh, you know, for all of its uh, pluses, democracy also contained the seeds of its own destruction. Because if you allow people to um, uh, elect their own leaders, then it's possible that you will see demagogues emerging to appeal to the angers and frustrations and grievances of people during bad times and to get those people riled up um, against the democratic system. And, and the threat was that these demagogues could bring the system down. Um, and they did in fact have demagogues uh, emerge in Athens that threatened democracy. So this really is something that's inherent to every democratic system. And the question is whether it does indeed prove um, a, a threat uh, over time and maybe even successful in bringing some democracies down. Now let's trade populism's roots in America, uh, Terry. Does it go back to Andrew Jackson or should I fix it to maybe later in the 19th century? Well, you know, it, a lot of this just depends on how you define uh, populism, right? Mm -hmm. People like to talk about Andrew Jackson as a populist, right. um, uh, but he's not the kind of populist that scholars are talking about these days, you know, like Hugo Chavez or Viktor Orban or Donald Trump. Right. Um, uh, Andrew Jackson was uh, the president of the common man. He saw himself as representing the common man um, against what had been since the founding, a very elitist brand of politics, in part because hardly anybody can vote, you know, and, and because, uh, you know, presidents weren't really elected by a vote of the people. They're at the electoral college, which consisted of elites and so on. And so um, in, the, in context, it seems like Andrew Jackson was like a populist president, but really Jackson was wedded to the constitution and to the rule of law um, and he was, um, compared to Donald Trump, a very normal president. He, he performed an important historical function because he was sort of a watershed in moving the nation toward democracy, right. you know, toward a democracy in which ordinary people participated, in which parties were mass parties and not elite parties and so on. He transformed our politics, but he kept it within the Constitution and within the norms and requirements of a democratic system, you know, Donald Trump uh, is something else entirely. And then, Terry, the rise of populism in America toward the end of the 19th century, the emergence of the so-called People's Party. Why, why is there not a People's Party today? Um, well, in some sense, there is. <laughs> but it's much, much, much more extreme um, and, and more successful. Uh, the Populist Party at, at the end of the 1800s um, can be seen as a reaction to the uh, tremendous disruptions of modernity. Uh -huh. uh, we had a constitution that was designed in 1787 for um, a very primitive agrarian society of 4 million people. Uh -huh. By the end of the 1800s, America was just booming and changing 
dramatically. It was industrializing, urbanizing. It was being flooded with immigrants uh, from Europe. And uh, that all that social change was incredibly disruptive, especially to people in rural areas, to farmers. Right. Um, and so they rose up and um, it was an anti-system movement, right? And it had some of the usual um, populist elements like the embrace of conspiracy theories and you know, blaming bankers for everything and right. so on. Um, but really the, the populist movement then sort of petered out and gave way to the progressive movement, which was a middle-class uh, movement that was dedicated to good government and to strengthening American democracy. Uh -huh. uh, Theodore Roosevelt, populist? Yes. Uh, no, excuse me. No. Theodore, Roose Theodore Roosevelt, yes, he was a progressive uh, leader, but right. he was not, he was not uh, what scholars today would call a populist. Right, this is where it gets tricky because the layman, Terry, a layman might think Roosevelt, the trust buster, very much a man of the people, populist, but you're saying. Yeah, no. but that's what I said right at the beginning, that yeah. uh, in common language, we think about populists as standing up for the, the common person, right? right, for ordinary people against the powers that be. And, you know, that's part of it. Um, but populism today is much more than that and much uh, more extreme and, and much more dangerous. Te Teddy Roosevelt was wedded to democracy mm -hmm. and, and to the norms and procedures of democracy. He, he was like the first modern president and uh, future presidents have stayed very much in sort of the Rooseveltian tradition of taking an active role and setting the nation's agenda and leading the nation, but doing it in a way that firmly adheres to democratic norms. Okay, so that would rule out his cousin Franklin then as well. Um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was not a populist, not in this sense, right? right. And he was uh, standing up for ordinary people um, and uh, providing uh, all sorts of uh, social benefits. You know, this was the beginning of the American welfare state of the New Deal. Right. Um, uh, but, um, what he did essentially was to save American democracy, because with the Great Depression and the collapse of capitalism, Americans, many Americans were seeing, number one, that capitalism didn't work. Number two, that democracy didn't work. Our, our political system didn't work. And there was a real threat at the time that populist uh, leaders like Huey Long and Father Coughlin could rise up attract a mass following and ultimately bring democracy down. But it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because the New Deal worked to attract the support of uh, uh, people to democracy. Right, Huey Long was actually my next question, Terry. Huey Long a populist, yes or no? Yes. Okay, every, uh, he, every man a king, right? Well, he was basically also uh, in uh, the way he ran Louisiana, an authoritarian. Right. You know, um, and that's where it goes. He was a strong man leader. Um, he was vulgar and offensive and um, thumbed his nose at all democratic norms uh -huh. and ran the state um, like uh, Vladimir Putin might have run it. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move to more modern times. George Wallace, populist, yes or no? Yes. Why? He played on um, grievance and anger and resentment uh -huh. 
Um, he was anti-government. He was anti-system. Um, he uh, inflamed passions against a government that he said was overreaching, um, imposing social change on a society that um, was resisting it in the South right. Right? And, and in some other places as well. Um, and he was a racist um, and a xenophobe, right? And so he was um, uh, pushing uh, elements of um, the populist playbook that um, create and inflame a populist constituency. Uh, but he was very early, right? And also the, the um, powers that be within the Republican and Democratic parties mm -hmm. um, were, uh, had, had control over the parties and over the nomination process. And somebody like Wallace, uh, who was followed later on by uh, Pat Buchanan mm -hmm. um, and Ross Perot, couldn't break through, mm -hmm. right? And so what you had was a series of very conventional Republicans, George H.W. Bush, um, George W. Bush, John McCain, uh, Mitt Romney, right? Who were not populists, right? And so the Republican Party ultimately had this populist base in the South of seething rage against the system and it couldn't break through because the Republican elites didn't allow it to. Right. We, uh, we skipped over somebody between George Wallace and the Bushes, and that's Ronald Reagan. Is he a populist, Terry? Uh, no. Why not? Because he here's a man who runs on, I'm from scariest words in English language, or I'm from the government, and I'm here to help, right? Yeah. I, well, I think, you know, all these things are matters of degree. Uh -huh. um, and it's, it's I, I, you know, it's probably um, ultimately misleading to say yes or no to every one of these things. Um, yes. Uh, it, it, so uh, Ronald Reagan had populist elements mm -hmm. and, and going all the way back, you know, William F. Buckley, even who was a, quite an elitist right. in, in many ways, but he was also a social conservative and he was he was also very much anti-government, anti-system, anti-New Deal. Right. Mm -hmm. And he sought to um, build a constituency based on that. Uh, which consisted of not only sort of neoliberal elites, meaning free market, libertarian elites, um, uh, but also social conservatives who hated the government for other reasons. Right. right. And so Ronald Reagan came along as sort of the culmination of what the Republicans had, uh, or like Buckley, had all, always wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and he um, uh, represented a coalition of both those elements. Right, the uh, libertarian element in economics, and the socially conservative element, right, and put the two together, right. But Reagan conformed to democratic norms, right. He conformed to the Constitution. He was not in the business of disrupting our democracy uh -huh. and thumbing his nose at democratic norms and potentially bringing the system down. He was a normal president. He just had very different policy views from past presidents. Right. Uh, you had a line in your uh, book, Carrie, that caught my eye. And this is bad news for our colleague, Richard Epstein, who was, the, of course, the, the feature star on the Libertarian podcast at Hoover. And here's what you wrote, quote, in today's political ecosystem, libertarians have all the relevance of the dodo bird and stellar sea cow. What happened to libertarians? Well, 
there are libertarians and there are libertarians, right? I mean, this um, is by the way, this I, by the way, Terry, another phrase that gets tossed around constantly. People just yeah. like, oh, I'm a libertarian. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so basically, if you think of libertarians as people who want to uh, uh, maximize the role of individuals and individual freedom, right. and um, uh, severely limit the role that government plays, um, you know, the, limiting it to foreign uh, uh, foreign affairs and national defense and and things like that, um, then you'd have to say that you know how what percentage of Americans are libertarians? Almost none, right? And the libertarians have been running candidates forever, right? And how many votes do they get? Two percent, something like that, right? So that's that's why we put that phrase. Uh, in the book, because it's true, but still, there are people who are who see themselves as uh, in favor of free markets, right? Right, free trade, um, and uh, reliance as far as possible on the private sector rather than the public sector uh, in doing the things that government traditionally does. Uh, those people often describe themselves as having libertarian leanings. Fine, you know, but they're really not libertarians in a strict sense. Well, it sounds like it's almost a fashionable thing to say as if you've sort of given great intellectual heft or maybe you just don't want to identify as conservative or liberal or democratic Republican. So it's a, for some people, Terry, it just might be a safe haven in terms of identity. Yeah, it's also a nice word for some people. And, and I think a lot of people don't really understand what the word means or don't think very deeply about it. So, okay, uh, let's employ the T word here. Let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump. Let's talk about Trumpism. And here's the question I'm always fascinated with. Politicians rise, politicians get elected, then politicians leave the stage. And the question is, can they be replicated? Can their movement continue on? And in modern times, we've seen Barack Obama is a very good example, the Obama coalition, uh, difficult to replicate. Joe Biden managed to pull it off. Hillary Clinton could not. Uh, question for you, Terry, if Donald Trump does not run in 2024, who knows what he's going to do? Um, but if Donald Trump does not run in 2024, does Trumpism survive without Donald Trump? Uh, I would say yes. Um, look, the way, I think the way to think about Donald Trump is that, you know, while he was uh, the proximate cause during his presidency of our crisis of democracy, mm -hmm. attacking our institutions um, and violating uh, democratic norms and procedures, um, and ultimately almost bringing our democracy down uh, with his denial that he had lost the election, you know, uh, the big lie, um, and the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Mm. Um, uh, the fact is that Trump really ought to be thought of as a symptom of larger social forces um, that uh, drive populism. And they are, uh, number one, the white backlash Right. Um, uh, against the growing diversity of American society um, and uh, against eight years of our first black president. There was a white backlash. There is a white backlash. It's big and it's in the Republican Party. Uh, but beyond that, and very fundamentally, um, uh, our politics and politics uh, in all uh, advanced nations is very strongly influenced by these powerful socioeconomic forces of globalization and technological change and mass migration 
that have brought financial insecurities and um, cultural anxieties to tens of millions of Americans, you know, people in this country. Right. And because our government has done such a lousy job of uh, responding um, uh, to the very uh, serious problems and concerns that these people have over the decades, um, this has fueled uh, a surging uh, populist movement that's an anti-system movement. People are mad you know, at, at the government um, and are willing to support a strongman ruler who can get things done on his own and, and express their rage and, and deal with their uh, demands and concerns. So um, with, with, with Trump, okay, you lost the election. Well, that constituency is still there. 74 million people, right? Yes. Uh, well, not, That's all, many people voted for him. not all of them are populists. Um, a lot of them are Republicans and they voted for him because he has an R after his name. Right. You well, know, let's, say, let's say maybe a third of that total maybe is. Okay. It? Yeah. That, so there's, you know, like the base of the Republican Party now is populist and it's not going away. And, and the forces behind it, globalization and all the rest, they're not going away. So let's say, you know, Trump just left the scene. Uh, there would be others. You know, look at them. They're just lining up to try to get at his constituency and attract that support because they want to run for president in 2024. And they are embracing Trumpism because that base is a Trumpist base. That's the important thing. Yeah, I'm just curious, Terry, if number one, uh, another Republican can kind of do it as well as Trump did in terms of playing to the crowds, in terms of being the showman, the strongman. And secondly, if the media will play along as they did in 2016. I mean, you hear CNN, for example, lamenting that they went live so many times with Trump. I'm just not sure if it's Ron DeSantis or a Ted Cruz or someone like that. It's going to have the same echo chamber effect that you had in 2016. You know, I think it's um, questionable that that Trump has these special powers, mm -hmm. you know, I think he's really a terrible speaker. Um, he doesn't read, he's in, incredibly ignorant uh, about history, about government, about almost everything. Um, and you have to imagine, what would the last four years have been like if you'd had a, a populist president who was committed to the same things that Trump apparently was, mm -hmm. but who was really competent who really knew what he was doing, who was educated, who was focused, that would have been dangerous. And so I, I think if you take Trump off the scene, I think uh, populist loyalties can certainly transfer to other leaders. And those leaders are likely to be much more competent than Trump. That can spell real danger. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get to 2024, uh, Terry, there's some election business to be done in Europe. Germany, for example, is facing an election this year. France will have elections. What, what is the status of populism in Europe right now? Well, um, I, I think uh, it's a process, right? So uh, populism has been um, a force in uh, European politics since about the 1990s, late 1980s. You're pointing um, to like Berlusconi? Pardon? You're pointing to Berlusconi? Uh, yes, uh, but uh, it was really driven uh, largely, uh, well, by two things. One is by um, the economics of austerity and all the rest that have come along with globalization and the outsourcing of jobs and the, the hollowing out of manufacturing, uh -huh. but also with the rise of immigration. 
in Europe. You have to remember that the European countries are homogeneous, white, Christian countries. And, um, you know, we tend to think about Europeans as being very cosmopolitan and liberal and acceptant and everything, but they've never really been challenged by immigrants who are not like them and who are flooding into their countries. Well, this started during the late 80s and, and 90s, and there was a reaction to it. And the reaction sur uh, provided a surge of support for populist parties who right. um, build their political support on a demonization of immigrants and, and foreigners and minorities and use them to blame the country's problems on. So um, that, that has been going on the whole time, but what really tipped the balance was um, uh, uh, this massive surge of immigration from 2014 to 2016, where you had just um, uh, hundreds of thousands of immigrants um, flooding in from um, the Middle East and from Africa um, and elsewhere. And the governments of Europe were unable to manage it, right? And they made a lot of mistakes. Uh, and uh, Merkel initially was saying, well, we should be welcoming, but there were so many of them, right? And in fact, it was more than hundreds of thousands. It was like uh, more than a million of these people coming in and uh, uh, basically, the people of Europe reacted very negatively uh, to this. And the result was a real surge of uh, support for populist parties. And it was right then that populism became a, a serious problem in Europe. Um, and it, it was just unclear where this was going to go. Um, but what ultimately happened was within uh, several years, um, uh, the European nations got a handle on this. Uh, they struck deals uh, with leaders um, and other prime movers outside of Europe um, and also in Greece and in Turkey uh, who were on the sort of the front lines of this about how to handle the immigrants. And um, the result was that they were able to reduce immigration to a trickle right. and they stopped forcing their citizens to accept all these immigrants. And the result of that was that support for populist parties has either stagnated or declined. So um, looking forward, it's unclear where this is gonna go, but for now, it seems like they're not sort of in a crisis, not like we are. Okay, so Terry, is the phrase popular movement interchangeable with populist backlash? Well, I don't know what you mean by popular. Well, it, sounds, it sounds like as we talk about populism, we're talking about in reaction to things driven by certain changes in society. So it strikes me as that's as much a backlash as it is a movement. Well, a, a, back, a backlash can form the basis for a movement. Right. right? And, and also populism involves um, particular uh, kinds of uh, reactions. Uh, and, in populations that respond to particular kinds of appeals. Uh -huh. So the kinds of appeals that are characteristic um, of, of populism is that um, uh, they are very, very anti-system. 
And as a result, they respond to leaders. And remember, this is arising within a democratic system. So they respond to leaders who attack democratic institutions, attack the media, attack the courts, attack the electoral system. And they also respond to leaders who demonize minorities and immigrants and foreigners, demonize the other um, and, and use them as scapegoats to blame for the country's problems. Fear and threat plays a big part in propelling um, populist movements. Um, they also respond to leaders who uh, stimulate anger and division and resentment, right? And, and so you can't say that all political movements are like this, you know? Right, like, right. It's not like the women's movement or the consumer movement are like this, they're not. The populist movement is distinct and it's based in anti-system anger and rage and grievance and fear and threat. Right. So one reason why I wanted to do this podcast, Terry, is because I've been reading a book uh, called Six Presidents, and it's about the 1920 election. And it has a title because if you look at the campaign in 1920, there were six presidents, current, past or, pre or future, who were involved in that election. That's Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. He dies in 1919. Presumptions he would have run in 1920. Taft is involved in terms of, you know, lending his voice to a Republican candidate. Woodrow Wilson, obviously. Uh, looms large over that election. Warren Harding uh, wins the election. Calvin Coolidge becomes president in 1923. And Herbert Hoover runs for president in 1920. Also, that's six presidents in total involved. Uh, but also reading it, Terry, because I'm fascinated with the idea of uh, return to normalcy. And, you know, the, the Harding phrase in 1920 picked up by Joe Biden uh, in this election as well. Uh, then you do me a favor and you pass along a column that you wrote for Political Science Quarterly. I think this is the updated intro to your book, if I'm not mistaken, Terry. Yes. And I want to read you a passage here. So have a drink of water. This is going to take a minute. But <laughs> this, this ties in re, uh, Return to Normalcy. And here's what you uh, wrote. Quote, the fact is, no matter which party holds the presidency, these are not normal times. They are populist times, anti-democratic times, and its sense of normalcy, there's that word normalcy, should it take hold with the election of a new president, stands to be little more than an exercise in denial, offering temporary relief from the recent populist turmoil, but leaving the causes of that turmoil unaddressed and the potential for continued democratic backsliding firmly in place. You add, Terry, quote, if American democracy is to be preserved, two things need to happen. First, the nation needs to see this crisis for what it is and understand why it came about and what its trajectory is likely to be. Second, it needs to use this understanding as a foundation for figuring out what can be done to defuse the populist threat through targeted reforms and policies. So there's your cue, Terry. Let's talk about targeted reforms and policies. Okay. Um, well, if, if you think about what I said earlier in terms of the fundamental causes of this, uh -huh. Um, the, 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 what, what is it that drives this populist anti-system rage, uh -huh. right? This rage against what is our democracy, really? Right. And the answer is, a part of it is a white backlash. And part of it is dri driven by um, uh, these big forces of globalization, technological change, and immigration that create financial problems and cultural anxieties uh, among many people, especially less educated, white working class people, especially in rural areas. So um, these problems and anxieties wouldn't have come about, most of them, if we'd had a government that had tried to do something about it. You know, I mean, like when economists talk about uh, the advantages of free trade, you know, they talk about how free trade can and should expand 
the economic pie, which means that society should be better off. Other things being equal, right? Right. And and uh, what that turns on is that the losers there, and there will be losers uh-huh. in any free trade arrangement, um, can be compensated by the winners, right? But the fact is, we don't do that. You know, there's some attempt to do that uh, through government uh, job training programs and so on, but. Uh, our government's efforts are weak and fragmented and ineffective. And the result of the matter is that, you know, people uh, in large swaths of the country um, lose jobs, their communities are decimated, um, and uh, uh, they can see that the government is not stepping in to help them, right? It's, it's, it's totally unconcerned with what's happening to them. Uh-huh. And so what we need is a, is a government that either through its own programs, which can be top-down bureaucratic programs, or by taking advantage of market mechanisms, right, where the government sort of structures it and then relies on the private sector, right. um, where the, the government then would step in and really help these people, you know, because they actually have serious problems. And so the reforms that we need are of two types. One, we need new programs that address the problems of these people when it comes to job training, health care, child care, um, control of the immigration system, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but more generally, we need reforms of our government that would make the government more effective because right. we have a government that is inherently structurally ineffective. You know, and we talk about that in the book uh, at some length. We talked about it in an earlier book uh, titled Relic, uh, right. which is about how our government was designed in 1787, for God's sake, you know, and and that was 230 years ago. And why would we think that that government is going to be well suited to providing us today uh, with a government that can effectively deal with the complex problems of modern times? Our government doesn't do that. And that's a big part of why people are so anti-system, because they're facing a government that just can't meet their needs. I'd like to read you two more uh, passages from your article, Terry. First, uh, you wrote, quote, if institutional reforms are to be pursued, it might seem that the first order of business is to insist on additional formal constraints on the presidency, constraints that weaken presidential power to make sure that rogue presidents cannot advance autocratic aims. What do you have in mind? In terms of additional constraints on presidential power? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me just backtrack a little bit. What we argue is that... The presidency is absolutely crucial to effective government. Right. Uh, that's been clear throughout the modern era. Uh-huh. Um, and so on the one hand, you want presidents to be powerful enough to promote right. effectiveness. And that's my next question. You also write about giving them more power. So it's that's right. So either either talk about what you want to take away or talk about what you to give them. You you choose which order you want. Yeah, well, it, it, it's got to be a balance. Right. So we talk about the promise and the fear. Uh, and these have always been there with presidents. They have the promise of bringing more effective government uh, to the extent that we give them powers that allow them to do that. But on the other hand, there's the fear that presidents, rogue presidents, will use those powers uh, to dominate the government to, and to become dictators or demagogues, right? And the, the framers were very concerned about that as one of their central concerns. Okay, so in the book, we talk about um, trying to find the right balance. Right. So there are ref- there's one reform that we talk about centrally about adding to the president's powers to promote effectiveness. And then there are a number of reforms 
uh, that need to be adapted to constrain presidents to protect us against dictatorship. Is that, a, is that universal fast track authority that you're referring yes. to? Yes, the yeah, fast okay. track authority is to promote effectiveness. So uh, I can talk about that. For, explain how that explain how that worked, Terry. Yeah, well, we have fast track authority. We've have had it on and off for the last forty years or so. On trade, yeah. um, in international trade, right? And so the way it would work is that the president, because the president is of all actors in the federal government, the president is the one that's concerned about the nation as a whole, has a national constituency, is concerned about his legacy, right? And so wants to adopt programs that actually work and to design programs that actually work. And what happens now is presidents, you know, send programs down to Congress and Congress rips them to shreds and either doesn't pass them or passes some godforsaken thing that's very weak and fragmented and doesn't work. Right. Okay. So the way fast tracks would work is presidents would design the program uh, or policy proposal, send it down to Congress and Congress would have to vote on that policy proposal, up or down. They can't change it, have right. to vote on it up or down within 90 days on a majoritarian basis, no filibusters, and they can vote no, right? But um, in many cases, since presidents are gonna strategize this, um, presidents will be able to get these coherent uh, policy proposals through Congress rather than have them stonewalled mm -hmm. um, or ripped to shreds. And, you know, this will help promote effective government. Uh, and it doesn't do anything to promote dictatorship because Congress can just say no. Does any other democracy work along those lines? Um, well, you know, almost every other democracy in the Western world is a parliamentary system. Yeah. OK. Right. Fair point. And okay. so when just to, to emphasize that mm -hmm. when the party leadership then proposes a policy, uh, Congress ratifies it or uh, Parliament ratifies it, right? Mm -hmm. okay. And they don't change it typically, they just ratify it. Okay, so you've talked about what you'd like to give the president, what would you like to take away from the presidency? How would you, how would you constrain it? Well, I think what the Trump uh, administration uh, has shown uh, for the last four years is just how vulnerable our system is to authoritarian behavior on the part of a rogue president. Mm -hmm. You know, in the past, presidents have resisted pushing their powers to the hilt. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Trump ha has done that, um, uh, used every power at his disposal uh, and more uh, to do things that are threatening to democracy. Um, so um, he has, for instance, um, refused to allow um, executive branch officials to testify before Congress, refused to provide Congress with documentation um, and made it impossible for Congress to carry out its investigation functions. Uh, he has uh, obstructed justice um, uh, on a number of occasions, well-documented in the Mueller report and uh, more than a thousand former federal prosecutors uh, signed a statement saying that there was more than enough evidence there uh, to indict uh, Trump on multiple felony accounts. Um, during the election, he refused to uh, admit that he had lost. He promulgated a big lie and um, incited a riot that was intended to uh, stop uh, the counting of votes by Congress and to throw the election to Trump. It goes on and on. 
Um, uh, he has used the Justice Department um, to influence investigations and prosecutions and to favor his friends and to penalize um, his enemies. Um, he has tried to um, distort what the intelligence agencies do. Um, this is all extremely dangerous to our democracy. And so what we propose is that we need formal structures that uh, insulate the Department of Justice and the intelligence agencies, the most powerful agencies in American government, from direct presidential control. Uh, we also think that the sheer number of presidential appointments should be severely restricted. You know, in Europe, they typically have a few uh, uh, political appointees at the top of administrative departments, uh -huh. and everybody else is a civil servant. You know, they're experts, they're professionals, and so on, they're careerists. In this country, presidents make about 4,000 right. political appointments. Trump filled the executive branch with loyalists, many of them totally incompetent ideologues, and that sort of thing uh, is not only dangerous, uh, for democracy, but it also undermines effective government. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think these kinds of things are really important in moving the country toward a better system of government. Plus, we need a new conflict of interest laws about the president. And we also suggest that the president's pardon power through a constitutional amendment should be eliminated. You take away the power to uh, pardon altogether. Absolutely. There's no basis for it. Would any, no, so no federal official could, could pardon? Uh, a criminal? That's the job of the courts. Okay. You know, the idea that presidents should step in and pardon any anybody they darn well please is just a stupid idea that uh, really gets in the, look at what Trump did with it. Right. You know, he basically just pardoned his political cronies. This okay. is an outrage. And, every, and every, every, president has, every president has this problem on the way out uh, with pardons, it seems. Well, Trump took it to an extreme, but yeah, Clinton did it. George H.W. Bush did it. This should come to an end. Yeah. Would you take it away from governors too, Terry? Um, I, we don't talk about governors in the book. I, I mean, if you just ask me personally, I would say, yeah. yes, I would. Okay. You know? uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to wrap this up by uh, uh, getting uh, back to your political science roots. And I want to talk about Joe Biden for a couple minutes. Uh, I dove in California here at the Hoover Institution, Terry, and I've been following very closely what our governor's been up to. Um, he has about $100 billion at his disposal. Now, some of it he has to put into certain programs and all. But um, I did my homework. Uh, he put out a whole bunch of spending ideas, 400 programs in all, Terry, 400 different spending programs he's offering to the people of California. It comes at the same time that uh, the federal government is doing these massive COVID relief packages. Is it being overnight, overly naive, a little too simplistic to say that government is back? Well, <laughs> I mean, get, I mean, getting back to getting back to what Ronald Reagan said, you know, Reagan running about government being yeah. at the root of the problem. And here we have in 2021 between what's going on in Washington and here in California. No, it's government coming in with all kinds of programs, all kinds of solutions, getting back to what you referenced earlier, all kinds of ways to make your life better. Well, I think the answer to that is yes and no. You know, I mean, uh, there are a, a great. That's a, that's, a, that's a clever response. Yes and no. Well, it, um, so I want to talk about each side. Okay. Uh, on, on the yes side, I mean, I think there's a real public demand um, for all sorts of public services. You know, I mean, uh, the public was very supportive of uh, uh, um, having a healthcare system that works for them. 
and when Republicans tried to take down Obamacare, that was not a popular move. Um, people uh, need help, you know, in, in many ways. And the pandemic uh, simply underlined how important it is to have a government that can mobilize a public response to a serious social crisis. Right. So I, I think that, um, that there's that and the Democrats are moving forward with that, right? Right. There's a lot of support for the uh, policy positions that they've been pushing. Uh, on the other hand, the Republicans are in a good position to block, mm -hmm. right? Uh, at the national level, they have an advantage uh, in the Senate because each state gets two votes. Wyoming gets the same number of votes as California. So the Republicans have uh, an advantage there. They have an advantage in the Electoral College. Uh, there's the filibuster. And you add all these things up, plus the, the Republican strategy is simply to block. I mean, they, they don't really have a constructive uh, policy agenda. Um, they become the Trump party. Um, and in fact, uh, during the last convention, the Republicans didn't even have a platform. Right. Um, but they are in a position to block. And so anyone who thinks that suddenly we're going to have a national government that's opening up the floodgates and you know, where everything is going to change going forward and we're just going to have positive, active government that's unrestricted somehow. We're in a new era. You know, uh, the Republicans are going to have a lot to say about that. Uh, and finally, Terry, uh, when we talk about uh, populism um, and, and Trumpism and so forth, uh, what about on the left in terms of what we might loosely define as populism? Uh, I think you've noted that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren um, have some populist notions, but they are not necessarily populist. Do I, do I have that right? Yes. Because, I mean, they work, because they work in the system? Is that is that why? Yeah, I, th I think uh, both of them are uh, uh, supporters of democracy and of the Constitution, and they adhere to uh, well-understood um, democratic norms. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, they stand up for the little guy. Yeah, you know, they're in favor of taxing the rich. Those are, that's sort of the common language view of what populism is all about. Right. Uh, but uh, right-wing populism is something that's very, very different and inherently dangerous mm -hmm. to democracy. That's the difference. Okay. Uh, what about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC? Could she become the leader of left-wing populism? Um, well, I, she too uh, uh, is wedded to democracy, to democratic norms. She hasn't said or done anything uh, that's anti-democratic that I know of. Um, people may really disagree with her policies, you know, and right. think that she's an extremist on policy grounds, but that's very different um, from um, giving up on democracy itself and from for being opposed right. uh, to democracy. And that's the problem on the right. Uh -huh. um, I think uh, many people on the right, um, and particularly those uh, who support populism, um, uh, have... Uh, um, gotten involved in attacking democracy. Uh, uh, the, the Republicans now are undermining uh, voting rules, suppressing the vote uh, in all kinds of ways. And this is uh, um, uh, very asymmetric. You know, it, it's true that there are populist elements on the left, but they're very different from the populist elements on the right. Right. I guess what I'm getting at with AOC, Terry, is the idea of 
in a very hypothetical world, if if the Republicans manage to take over Congress in 2022 and 2024, let's give them both chambers of Congress for the sake uh-huh. of argument. Then let's give them the presidency to add on to that. And now you have a stretch in this decade where Republicans control all branches of government and Democrats are the party out of power. And within the ranks of that party, there would be anger and resentment. So what I'm curious about, Terry, is when we talk about Trumpism, we talk about seas of Trumpism, which would be uh, as you mentioned, immigration, economics, and so forth. What elements on the left could fire a populist movement? Uh, the one, I, the one I see right now is a denouncement of wealth. Well, the Republicans are the party of wealth. Yeah, but, but in terms of in terms of in terms of what makes the left angry, wealth. In terms of just firing up the base. Okay. I again, this gets back to the uh, common use of the word populist. I, I think that. People on the left are very concerned about uh, the disadvantaged, about inequality, right? Right, and they would want to fight back against policy proposals and right. legislation that would come from a Republican administration, right? But the Democratic Party um, uh, consists also of more educated people, more professional people. And, and uh, as a whole, this is a party that is committed to democracy and to democratic procedures and norms. The Republican Party no longer is, and that, that's the real danger. And so if you have a, a, a Republican administration where they control the House and the Senate and the presidency, even if Donald Trump isn't involved at all, uh, the real danger is not that they're gonna adopt policy proposals that people on the left don't like. Uh, the real danger is to democracy and, and their inclination to do what, whatever it is they want to do, democracy be damned, because they don't respect the norms and procedures of democracy anymore. That's the danger to democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing in the era of Trump, Terry, that I hated was predictions. I predicted every step of Donald Trump wrong. I, I did not think he would run in 2015. I did not think he would win a primary. I did not think he would get his party's nomination. I didn't think he would win. I thought he might get a second term, but it was pre-pandemic. I was wrong on every step. It's like watching a bowling ball go down the stairs, step by <laughs> step by step. So I'm going to end the podcast by being a jerk and asking you to predict something. When do we return to normalcy? We're talking, we're talking one or two election cycles, or are we in for several decades of waiting waiting for the political system? I think, I think it'll definitely be a while. I, I think the normalcy uh, that some people see right now is, uh, is completely misleading. Yeah, Joe Biden is president, and he's behaving like a normal president. You know, Whether you agree with his policies or not, he's a normal president. Trump right. was not a normal president. But I think uh, that is due to the nature of his constituency, uh, to, uh, to the rise of populism and to the inherent anti-democratic nature of politi- um, populism. So if, if you play this out, mm-hmm. the Republicans are going to continue to be an anti-democratic party and a danger to our democratic system. Um, and they're going to continue to be competitive, right? Because they're doing everything they can to manipulate uh, electoral laws um, uh, in their own favor. And so, if, you know, uh, going forward, um, uh, it's hard to see a return to normalcy. I think what we're going to get is a sort of a bifurcated situation where the Democrats behave like, you know, presidents and administrations always have in the past, right. and, and Republicans don't. 
Republicans are going to be a reflection of the kinds of things that Trump did and the kinds of threats that he represented to democracy. And my own hope is that um, when the Democrats are in power, if they ever are, with control of the House and the Senate with sufficient majorities, that they can do the kinds of things that will win enough people back, satisfy enough of these alienated people, so that they'll be satisfied with our democratic system and take the wind out of the sails of the populist component of the Republican Party and bring the Republican Party back more toward the center so that it will embrace democracy and compete in a normal way within the democratic system. That's what's gonna save our democracy. If that doesn't happen and the Republicans continue on the path that they're on now, we're in for a heap of trouble. So, Terry, the longer this plays out, the longer, uh, the more opportunity you have to write books and uh, <laughs> do papers and give lectures at Stanford. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover I-N-S-T. Terry, you're not on Twitter, are you? No. Okay. That's proving you're a very smart man. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast, www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Terry Moe and his Hoover colleagues. I also reference Terry's book at the top of the podcast. The title of that, again, if you want to go to Amazon and pick up a copy, President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy. You have an updated version of it coming out, Terry? It just came out in August, so okay. it's pretty darn new. Okay, very good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.